Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we discuss more mitigation and policy opportunities for combating climate change. Plus, we learn the long-term economic impacts of racial disparities in college attainment. The segment of the population that cannot support themselves at levels that we think of as tolerable, if that segment grows, that's going to become a larger burden on the rest of us. And we hear how Colorado children are impacted by COVID-19 deaths of loved ones. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. On Monday, a United Nations panel released a major report documenting the current state of the physical science behind climate change. Yesterday, we heard from one of the report's lead authors, Linda Mearns, and the message was dire. Our planet is warming even more quickly than we thought. Today, we're speaking with another Colorado-based climate scientist. Max Boykoff is professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado and an author on the yet-to-be-released third installment of the Climate Change Report. His work focuses on opportunities for climate change mitigation and policy. Max, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you, Erin. So the panel report that came out on Monday was pretty dire. We've learned about some of the climate impacts that we can expect to experience here in northern Colorado, uh, more extreme and more frequent wildfires, heat and drought, to name a few. So my first question for you is, how inevitable are these changes? Is there still room to save ourselves from the worst of these impacts? The first part of it is yes. We uh, have made commitments over the last decades and even 100 years to the kinds of concentrations of carbon dioxide we have in the atmosphere now. Carbon dioxide is one of a basket of greenhouse gases that includes methane as well, uh, that impacts this um, way in which we see climate change all around us. Some have talked about how the Model T Ford from back in 1911, the emissions from the Model T Ford are those that we're experiencing and dealing with now because carbon dioxide has a lifetime in the atmosphere of up to 200 years. But to the second part of your question, we have many opportunities right now uh, with urgency to be addressing adequately and to the scale of the challenges we have before us. The human ingenuity, the technology, the cultural awareness and engagement is greater now in 2021 than it ever has been. I want to touch on all of those things, but let's start with some of that technology you mentioned. What do we mean when we talk about the technology of climate mitigation and climate adaptation? Sure. And just to back out a touch more, when I talk about mitigation, it's often just thinking about protecting the climate and environment from us, from our activities. And conversely, when you think about adaptation, it's protecting us from climate and environment. There's a lot of interactions within, but that's just a simple way for everyone to think about it. So when we think about mitigation, there are many tools available to us. We can reduce our own emissions in our everyday lives. We can, uh, through policy actions, put in place certain incentives, certain rules for say industrial power plants to be reducing their emissions. And then also through technology, there's ways in which we can help to reduce those emissions, say, at the smokestack. We can also make switches, mode switches, from coal, oil, natural gas over to renewables. A big part of mitigation 
also comes down to policy, right? So talk us through Colorado's current climate policy. Colorado has been at the forefront of many policies at the state level that are addressing climate change. But yet, having said that, I think anyone who's involved in climate policy action from the executive and the governor's office over to the state house and Congress will tell you that these are series of compromises, that these are collective action problems. And so the policies that we see put in place and implemented still can, in climate terms, need to be increased, need to be made more stringent, need to be more ambitious. And so Colorado has several policies put in place to address kind of the major emitters of those we can talk about industrial power plants, power generation, coal, and natural gas. We can also then talk about transportation systems. There's a lot of uh, work being done there. And there's also then work being done that that, uh, helps pursue further renewable technologies that can be implemented across the board, but then also specifically within our households. And there have been some pretty ambitious emission reduction goals set in recent years. Are we on track to meet those goals? Well, when you say we, um, if you're thinking about it as a global society, no, we are not on track to meet those goals. It is important to have these goals in mind, but the very important piece is thinking about what are the steps to get from here to there. And that's where important policy decisions made at the local level, made at the state, regional, national, and international level are the very important parts to get us to those goals. And so while the answer is no, there are encouraging signs that there are these policy measures being put in place. And as I say that, the window of opportunity is closing, and so we need to be taking these kinds of actions right now. Are there actions that people can take in their personal lives that can make a substantial dent in this problem? I'll start by just saying, you know, I can understand how people may feel overwhelmed. I mean, the facts are that We have not seen this level of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere for 4 million years. You know, 8 of the 10 warmest years on record have come in the last decade. These are the realities. These are the challenges. But all of us, even though we aren't uh, most likely uh, influential decision makers, we still have opportunities every hour, every day, every week, every month of every year to start to make the kind of changes that are necessary in our lives. By that, I mean the food that we choose to eat. That's not just whether we eat meat or not. It's actually also where we are getting our food from, what kind of transportation that may involve, what kind of water demands that this may involve in the places where these where ingredients are being grown, where food is being grown is important. The clothes that we choose to wear or that we choose to buy, you know, uh, textiles and clothing makes up 10% of global emissions. These are choices that we can make uh, on a daily basis. You know, sometimes these projections can feel far off and almost abstract to a lot of people. But on the other hand, we're experiencing the actual reality of these projections as, you know, air quality on the front range is among the worst in the world due to heat waves and wildfires and emissions. I'm wondering if you're starting to see people take climate change a little more seriously now that it's, you know, upon us or... Is there more work to do to persuade people to take action now? There is always much more work to do. Um, I do think that uh, there has been a lot of progress in terms of awareness, particularly younger people. I work with students here at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and they've been born into a world where this has already been on the public agenda. 
and many are ready to take the next steps. They understand the diagnosis and they want to be part of positive change. And some of that is derived also from the facts that rather than thinking about this as a distant threat decades from now and affecting polar bears on distant icebergs that will never actually be visiting ourselves, that this is happening here and now. The conditions in 2021 are much more stark, much more palpable, and much more visceral than they were back in 2013. Max Boykoff is a professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado. Max, thank you so much for speaking with us. I appreciate it. Students drop out of college for a variety of reasons, but thanks to a new state law, they could earn an associate degree if they've completed a set number of credits towards a bachelor's degree. The big sticking point is the large post-secondary attainment gap between whites and several other racial and ethnic groups. In collaboration with the Heckinger Report, KUNC's Stephanie Daniel has more on how this disparity could have long-term economic impacts. At a small taqueria in North Denver, the dinner rush is just starting. Hi, miss. Uh, what can I get for you? Hola. Hola. Server Brandon Avejas is confirming a to-go order at the family business his grandfather started over 30 years ago. Uh, Picking up the tacos? Yeah. Steak tacos? He does a little bit of everything during his 40-hour work week, from busing tables to marketing and social media. His father died last year, and he's working to support his mom. We had to pay for our rent and pay for our bills, and I understood my mom wasn't there yet, but I was strong enough, and I just had to do that for us. The 18-year-old recently graduated from nearby North High School with a nearly perfect grade point average, and he racked up a year's worth of community college credits during his senior year. But when it was time to go to college, the odds were stacked against him. Cost and financial is, is absolutely an important barrier. Nathan Cadena heads up the nonprofit Denver Scholarship Foundation. Additionally, academics tend to be a barrier based on the school history of a particular student. He works with teens attending Denver Public Schools, which enrolls mostly kids of color. The foundation provides services for first-generation and low-income students to help them figure out their life after high school. This includes partnering with in-state colleges and universities on scholarships and other assistance. And then also provide the wraparound supports for them to complete whatever credential or pathway that they're pursuing. The percentage of residents ages 25 to 64 with a college credential or degree has steadily increased since 2008. National Education Foundation Lumina has ranked Colorado as one of the most educated states. But large gaps exist between the proportion of whites and Asians who've achieved this goal compared to blacks or Hispanics and Latinos like Brandon Navejas. That's a problem because the workforce here and around the country is changing. Jeffrey Zacks is an economist at the University of Colorado Boulder. The fundamental point here is that the economy is getting more sophisticated and the number of opportunities that there would be for people who don't even have a high school degree is shrinking. To meet the demand for workers with post-secondary degrees, the state has been importing highly educated talent to fill jobs. The downside is homegrown talent is falling behind, and not just academically, but economically as well. The segment of the population that cannot support themselves at levels that we think of as tolerable, if that segment grows, that's going to become a larger burden on the rest of us. An analysis by the Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce found post-secondary attainment gaps cost the U.S. nearly $1 trillion a year. 
That factors in lost earnings, higher spending, and tax revenue, combined with the potential savings on social services. And experts worry the pandemic will exacerbate these educational disparities. For a student that's not sure they want to go to college, Zachs says it's important to reach them well before they're seniors in high school. Did she take your drink order? Uh, not yet. All right, we have uh, water, horchata, lemonade. And this brings us back to first-generation college student Brandon Avejas. He worked with an advisor from the Denver Scholarship Foundation throughout high school. The cost of college was the biggest concern, he says, but the nonprofit helped him figure it out. This year, it was actually a little more virtual, being online learning, but they had it posted on their dashboard, scholarships, and I trumped at every opportunity I could. And his tenacity paid off. Nevejas got a scholarship from the University of Colorado Boulder and starts this fall. He plans to major in aerospace engineering, get his master's degree, and become an astronaut. Colorado, after all, has the nation's second largest aerospace economy, and engineering jobs are growing faster than the national average. I'm excited just to meet new people, broaden my networking, the professors over there especially. I know I'll be really learning like exactly what I need to learn. His family is excited too. He's also kind of nervous about being away from home. It's not too far, and my grandpa's always going to have a spot for me to work whenever I need some extra cash, come on the weekends. But before he goes off to achieve his dream of going to space, his focus is much more grounded, serving customers at his family's restaurant. Alrighty, miss. It's just going to be 1303. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. From remote school to social isolation, kids have struggled during the pandemic. Many have even lost primary caregivers, parents and grandparents, to COVID-19. A new study published in the journal The Lancet last month estimates more than 1.5 million children around the world have suffered this type of loss. KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson joins us now for more on how this is impacting kids here in Colorado. Hi, Lee. Hey there. So the state is not tracking the number of young people who have lost caregivers to COVID. What were you able to find out as far as how widespread the impact is here in Colorado? You know, I don't have hard numbers, but medical professionals who work in this space with kids are absolutely seeing the loss of primary and sometimes secondary caregivers. Dr. Maya Bunick is a pediatrician. Dr. Ayelet Talmi is a pediatric psychologist. They both work at clinics within the children's hospital system, mostly with underserved kids. And Dr. Talmi explained that when young people lose parents, they oftentimes have to move and their routines can totally change. Those often manifest as difficulties that caregivers then come in and say, this child is really struggling with sleep. They're refusing to eat. They don't want to go to school. They don't want to sleep without me. Dr. Bunick gives this recent example, two kids who lost their mom to COVID back in March, their grandma's now taking care of them. And I saw them just last week. I saw the five-year-old. And of course, because of age-related things, the five-year-old just keeps asking if mom's going to come back. The seven-year-old understands it. The grandmother is trying to keep the kids in their routines, but she's also suffering herself. This is really hard for her to believe that she's lost her own daughter. It's such a mixed um, group of feelings, right? She's trying to be positive for her grandkids and try to um, show them that everything's going to be okay. But at the same time, she's really grieving inside. Well, Lee, it sounds like the struggles related to kids losing their caregivers to COVID really does just extend beyond the original family. That's really how both of these doctors talked about and framed the issue, um, and in some ways, even in a broader way. 
That's because many of the families that they particularly work with are low income, many are Spanish speaking, oftentimes uh, they're essential workers, people who have been hit way harder by the pandemic than other groups. Um, economically, at first, of course, some of these families struggled to afford things like food and diapers. Also among these groups, COVID infection rates have been disproportionately high. So Dr. Bunick said that pretty much all of her patients know someone who was either hospitalized or died from COVID-19. And if you have experienced loss before, it's just sort of loss upon loss and stress upon stress. And so we definitely are feeling that in our community for sure. When it comes to well-being among children around what we're talking about here, caregiver loss, where are we at? It's a little difficult to say for sure, uh, but both of these doctors said we're only at the beginning, and that is something that I've heard over and over from many experts over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. Essentially, that childhood well-being has been so impacted that's not like there's a switch you can just flip when case numbers go down. Plus, now the Delta variant is bringing new stressors, as is uncertainty about returning to school soon, vaccines, mask mandates, all that stuff. Over the past few weeks in Colorado, children are starting to make up a slightly higher percentage of COVID cases, but generally, as is across the country, hospitalizations and deaths are still extremely rare. Here's Dr. Talmi again. Death loss, loss of income, loss of life, style and quality, loss of relationships and connections really are foundational to child and family well-being. And so we are needing to brace ourselves to be in it for the long haul. Lee, are there any recommendations for resources for kids that you have? In their clinic, Dr. Talmi and Bunick, uh, they give out a book called The Tenth Good Thing About Barney. Now, this is a book about losing a pet, but it's helpful for grieving kids. They also recommend creating photo albums and telling stories when a loved one dies, but above all, getting connected with mental health professionals. Now, when school is back in session, which is upon us, kids will once again have access to in-person school counselors and in some cases, you know, real behavioral health services. In addition to that, this past legislative session, um, a bill passed that will give uh, school-age kids in Colorado access to three free mental health sessions during this school year. This is something, uh, legislation born out of um, the mental health impacts of the pandemic. That online portal to sign up for free therapy should be active in September. Lee Patterson covers mental health for KUNC. Thanks so much for talking with us, Lee. You're welcome. When U.S. gymnast Simone Biles announced her withdrawal from the team and all-around competitions at the Olympics this year, many were shocked to see the defending gold medalist step down at the top of her game, especially because she was not suffering from a physical injury, but a mental health concern. While this may have surprised fans and spectators, athletes grappling with their mental health sounded all too familiar to Denver sports and performance psychologist Dr. Steve Portenga. Portenga helps professional athletes develop a positive performance mindset and even wrote the APA definition of performance psychology. And he joins us now. Steve, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks, Erin. I think a lot of people assume that professional athletes are these kind of superhuman beings who are unfazed by anything. But that's not the case, of course. 
what are some examples of the kinds of stresses and pressures that they're under that can really impact their well-being? I think some people will be surprised that the stresses and pressures they face are pretty typical for anyone in a high-performance work environment. I think pressure really starts from how anyone in particular bases their identity. How do they define what constitutes a success, what makes up a failure, and the consequences of succeeding or failing? And everyone is very different in that. Some athletes making an Olympics might be a huge success. Other athletes, anything other than gold would be a huge failure. Were you surprised when Simone Biles withdrew? What, how did you react? I don't know Simone personally, so I wasn't sure how to take what she was going through. But the fact that an athlete at the Olympics would do something like that is both a little bit surprising and not. The pressure is tremendous there. When I was in the London Olympics, a number of athletes that didn't want anything to do with me in the four years leading up to that, at times that pressure got beyond what they knew how to handle and needed someone to talk to, to confide in. But I was very shocked that someone of her profile would do so, so publicly. And I think that's a wonderful change to be able to start this ongoing conversation. We know mental health isn't just about emotional well-being, but really, you know, psychological well-being. When an athlete is feeling stressed or when they're feeling like they can't perform, what's actually happening in their brains? I think a lot of people are very well aware of the phrase mind-body connection. I don't think many people really understand just how intimately they are connected. Whenever we have an emotional response, we have a physiological response and vice versa. And with most people, when they have that reaction, uh, they can go about their days. The, the changes physiologically may not hinder their ability to sit at their desk and type. But as an elite athlete, particularly in a sport like gymnastics, where requirements from a motor control standpoint are off the charts, any small little hindrance in their nervous system's ability to process information and fire can be the difference between success or hurting yourself. At the Olympics this year, as with any sporting event during this pandemic, athletes didn't have the same support from family or fans in the crowds. Is this something that overall impacts performance of athletes? I think there were a lot of athletes that had to prepare differently for not having their typical support systems available in Tokyo. The ones that probably thought through it well enough ahead of time to prepare for that likely did better than the athletes who didn't really have a plan in place. A lot of times they'll rely on someone on the outside to recognize what's going on and to say something. And it's very comforting for an athlete to have that outside person there. And when you don't have that person there that you typically rely on, all of a sudden you're responsible yourself and your ability to be self-aware and self-monitor and self-reflect become crucial. Athletes train with individual coaches often during the four-year period leading up to the Olympics. And the coaches at the Olympics are not necessarily coaches that they're used to. And oftentimes those coaches are more chaperones to make sure the athletes get to the right place at the right time than actually being involved in technical coaching. With that in mind, the 2020 Summer Olympics just wrapped up, but the 2022 Winter Olympics aren't too far away. What changes can be made to better prioritize and understand athlete mental health for the Winter Games? I think that is a very necessary and very complicated question. On a small level, athletes need to incorporate mental health into their planning for the next couple of years. What are some of the things that may create pressure, some of the situations that are likely to lead to challenges? And think ahead for, ideally, how can we diffuse that, not have it have as much pressure in the first place? 
But when that pressure is there, what are we going to do with it? Uh, I think a big part of that goes back to what we talked about in terms of physiology, not having a uh, very overactive stress response, training the body and the nervous system to be able to handle that increased pressure. The pressure and the energy at the Olympics is levels above anything else. I remember walking into the Olympic Stadium in London for the first time and the hairs all over my arms were literally just standing on end because of the energy there that you could feel. And if you have a very crystal clear plan from a uh, motor perspective, then you can channel that energy and use it. As casual fans or spectators, I think we're interested in understanding and empathizing with these wonderful athletes that we're cheering on. So how can we do a better job of that? What I work with a lot of athletes is trying to have them realize that they're more than just an athlete, that there's enough going on in their life that they value to be able to have them have some foundation of identity to protect against some of the things that may not go their way. One of the big problems that I think is very unique about the world of sport is almost everything is quantifiable and everything is public. You know, for almost every athlete, you can look up their stats, you can see how they perform. And unfortunately, it's easy for athletes to put a lot of their identity on their performance because a lot of other people do that to them. I've absolutely seen times where someone is talking to a very successful athlete and will stop mid-conversation to go talk to an athlete that's more successful, purely from a sport performance. And so a lot of athletes get told sometimes by people close to them that their value as a person is tied to their athletic performance. So it's easy for them to internalize that, unfortunately. That was sports and performance psychologist, Dr. Steve Portenga. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for continuing the conversation. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.